This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. On today's show, we welcome Dr. Frank Moore, distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Southern Mississippi. For more than 30 years, he, his students, and other collaborators have studied the biology of migratory songbirds across North America but most intensely along the northern coast of the Gulf of Mexico. Today we'll talk about these migratory birds that visit Mississippi along their migration. As always, Dr. Major is ready for your pet questions. So join our conversation this morning with email animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Let me let's uh, start with you with your weekly check-in on what you're seeing out there on the west coast in Oregon. Uh, we're really starting to see the beginnings of fall, which I sort of feel bad about admitting, I guess, because Javelisonia, it's still pretty hot there. But uh, uh, fall really does happen right around the first days of fall, evidently here. A uh, little bit cooler in the morning, starting to see a little bit of change in the vegetation. Uh, of course, it's harvest time here, and this is a great agricultural area, all kinds of fruit, and uh, our apples and pears are um, finally coming in. They're uh, not quite ripe yet, but I can tell that just as we leave to come to Mississippi, they're probably going to ripen up here. <laughs> and uh, But we've got another crop of raspberries, which are great, so I'm eating those. Uh, we went, um, took the boat out a couple of trips this week um, on Yakina Bay and uh, then again uh, on the Alsea Bay. So um, we've um, had a lot of fun with that. In fact, thinking about migration, that's the subject today of our guest, Dr. Moore's uh, conversations. And um, I was thinking about crab migration because we were crabbing again, catching uh, uh, Dungan's crabs and they move around, and we're trying to learn more about how the crabs migrate because, um, you know, we can only catch the larger males. And I feel bad when I pull up a bunch of traps and I've got all the females. And, of course, I have to put them a little through the stress of getting caught. They did get to get a chicken meal from us, though. <laughs> and then uh, they're released. So um, trying to um, read more about how we can um, maximize our male catch and minimize our female catch, which all the other crab fishermen are doing too, I've learned. So that's kind of where we are. And on the bird... uh, Let me me jump in for a minute. Is it easy to tell the difference between a male and a female crab? Yes, pretty easy. Yeah, you do have to flip them over, you know. You have to flip them over and check. And so I'm, I'm all about trying to be sure I don't pull any extra legs off or any of that. Although I think the next molt they would get them back, but um, it's really kind of fun. Uh, pull up a trap and uh, 
a lot of times we'll just dump them. If there's a whole bunch, the easiest thing to do is dump them all out on the floor of the boat and then have your gloves on and start flipping them over and tossing over. And, you know, generally you toss over more than half because they're either small or female. And then the ice chest is there for the male so we can get them cooled off real quick. But it's it's a, to me, it's fun and exciting. Uh, but the rest of the time, you can have your binoculars and be looking. We see bald eagle pretty much every time we go. And uh, uh, the uh, pigeon guillemots have been fun to watch. And then here in our yard, we're seeing um, uh, rose-breasted nuthatches and downy woodpeckers. And uh, I, so uh, similar kinds of things. They're both year-round residents here. And then um, Buick's wren, we hear a lot. And, of course, our... Our chickadees and um, scrub jays are always in the yard, so that's been fun. Uh, I, we're going to talk, I guess, again. You know, we planned a trip, a, a show last week that we didn't do, and we're going to talk a little bit about ant lions. So I, I went searching for ant lions and did find them in a barn here nearby. I think we'll maybe do that next week with Joe. I think it's the plan. So we'll talk a little more about that, but uh, we're getting ready to come back to Mississippi. I'm starting to really miss it and looking forward to the trip back and trying to decide where we'll go. And I guess just my overall impression is just how glorious and beautiful this country is. And I encourage all of our listeners to get outside as much as they can and enjoy it. Whether you're staying home in Mississippi or you're going to get out and travel, uh, take your binoculars with you and maybe a few um, bird guides if you download them on your phone or, or grab them to have in the car with you so you can kind of get an idea of what it is you're seeing along the way. Um, very good. Uh, and just interesting that the story about the crabs, I guess we don't think much about non-bird creatures migrating, but apparently some do. Oh, yeah. And now this is more of a... And whether it would meet uh, Dr. Moore's test of a true migration, often people use the word migrate for, you know, other movements. But they are definitely taking uh, the best advantage of their resources, moving from one place to another. Some of it is to get cover to avoid um, predation. And, uh, but a lot of it, of course, has to do with where the food is. So, September 18th through the 24th is National Dog Week, and Tinder, yes, the online dating platform, is making a push this National Dog Week to match dog rescues with potential owners. Members of the app can view and like rescue match profile cards in their typical Tinder card stack or visit rescuematches.com to help find dogs a forever home. Tinder says the dog lover is one of the top 10 most popular interests added to Tinder profiles. So now maybe go on Tinder not only find your true love, but a little puppy as well. So, uh, good morning, Dr. Major. I think uh, Java has a question for you. Yeah, Dr. Major, I thought that was kind of kind of neat. <laughs> <laughs> they can use Tinder to find forever homes for the dogs. But I did have a question because just last night, um, my wife and I were um, kind of, you know, cleaning up around the house, and we vacuumed up maybe, I don't know, a pound of uh, of dog hair. And is is it? Is it shedding season um, for dogs, or is it just our dog being messy? <laughs> Neither, probably. Uh, I, I would say this. I doubt if you really had a pound of hair. 
That's pretty cool. Well, it was, I, all, all I know it was a lot. <laughs> a lot of our dogs shed year-round, uh, maybe more at certain times of the year than others. Uh, some dogs are beginning to, because of the changes in daylight hours, uh, they're getting, uh, you know, getting uh, ready for winter, if you will, even though they're inside dogs. Uh, I would say that probably this is normal as long as your dog is not losing patches of hair. And, you know, as you can see the skin, but if he's replacing it, uh, the dog's replacing it, I'd say it's fine. Okay. Well, I just wanted to, wanted to see. And this is also, too, the first uh, shed since we had our little um, incident with the um, right. with the with the fly larvae. And she had to get really, really shaved down so they could, you know, clean it and all that stuff. So I just exactly. didn't know if it was shedding season. <laughs> I think, think a lot of dogs, it's a common complaint that we have. And, you know, quite frankly, after uh, about noon, we have to sweep the floor again at the clinic because a lot of times the dogs are shedding here at the clinic. If you pet one, you get hair coming off. So that's pretty normal. Back to tender thing, y'all be careful on that. Uh, some of the websites have had some, some issues, and I'm not a website thing with Tinder or any of those dating services because I don't need to happily marry. But <laughs> point, point being, uh, go into that with uh, your eyes wide open and, uh, check things out. Uh, so, Doctor Major, follow up on on shedding and grooming, and we've talked about this in the past. Is it a good idea uh, with maybe both dogs and cats for owners to maybe get a furminator or some sort of comb and and maybe make uh, combing their pet a regular part of the routine? I mean, that's one of the greatest things you can do if you're complaining about hair. I get it doesn't have to be a furminator, but a good brush or comb. Furminator when you have mats and. Uh, a heavy buildup of hair is great, but even my cats uh, like to be uh, brushed, and you will remove a fair amount of hair. And that on cats, it might even cut down on the amount of hairballs that the cats get. You know, they tend to accumulate hair, and then they'll throw up something that you'll probably step on in the morning when you get up out of bed. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a squeeze, squeamish type thing. But, uh, you know, that's good, and also with the dogs, they... Most most of the dogs and cats like a good brushing or combing. Uh, let's uh, get a pet question in. It looks like Elise has called in with a question. Elise, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Okay, thank you. My question is, we have a neutered male dog. The dog does not hoist his leg to urinate. But the dogs that have not been neutered, they do. And and it's not just me that has noticed this. That's the reason I'm calling. Is several of us are wondering: is this is this something that that changes when they become neutered, or or is it just a random behavior? Great question. Uh, a lot of our our male dogs that have been neutered, especially early on, will squat to urinate. Uh, I guess that's what you're talking about, rather than hiking right. their legs. Some of the That's neuter males will still hike their legs, so it's not universal. In fact, some females will hike their leg when they urinate, so it's it's not a specific thing. Very few females do that, incidentally, but I have seen that. So I would say that uh, neutering uh, does have that effect where the dogs, many of the males, will squat to urinate as opposed to hiking their leg. And that's one of the advantages. If you have a house dog, 
that's starting to mark its territory, uh, I would say it needs to be neutered immediately uh, simply because it's difficult. Once they get used to that, to get them to stop. I see. All right. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Elise, for your call. Our guest for this hour on Creature Comforts is Dr. Frank Moore from the University of Southern Mississippi. Thanks, Dr. Moore, for joining us. Back in March, you joined the show to talk about spring migration, but now most of our bird life uh, is flying south to warmer and more tropical places uh, thousands of miles away. Uh, What are some of these migrating birds people might see if they look up uh, in the sky this time of year? Well, if during the day they're likely to see um, purple martins um, gathering in huge roosts and then moving south, maybe purple martins that nested in... uh, their Martin house in their backyard, or barn swallows that uh, build mud nests under bridges or overhangs at schools, they're moving south as well, and they're pretty common. When we talk about uh, migrating, you know, it's amazing. I think all humans are, are amazed by the, the such long distances that some of these birds uh, migrate. What are, what are some of the risks that are associated with long migration? You know, they're confronted with uh, places they've never been before, uh, with predators they know nothing about. Um, most of our birds migrate at night, and so they invariably are going to lose some sleep, and you know what sleep loss can do to all of us. Um, competition with other migrants or residents along the way. Um, and what's interesting, particularly about fall migration, is that much of our bird life that's moving south now, they're young birds. Birds that were born two months ago, and this is their first journey. Hmm. Uh, and they're, in all likelihood, alone. And so our challenges are magnified, Will, for these young birds. So um, do, does it vary? And Do some birds uh, fly nonstop and some stop over at strategic places? Or I, I mean, I guess most of them would eventually have to stop for a break at, at some point. Well, that, that's an excellent question because birds are actually the songbirds that we're familiar with. Uh, the purple martins, for example, are quite capable of flying nonstop hundreds, if not thousands of miles, um, say from Jackson, Mississippi, all the way to uh, uh, southern part of Mexico, nonstop. Our guest for the hour, Dr. Frank Moore from the University of Southern Mississippi. Going to be talking about migratory birds throughout the hour, having a little of technical issues, which we're trying to work out, though. Uh, So in the meantime, uh, Dr. Major, it's uh, transitioning into fall ever so slowly here in Mississippi, but uh, anything to keep in mind uh, as the temperatures get cooler uh, in terms of our pets? Interesting thoughts. Uh, a lot of times we see some changes in habits and dispositions. I think I've seen more. Uh, as it, We had a few cool days. Uh, we've seen a fair number of dog fights, for example, uh, even among, when I say dog fights, I'm saying even among housemates uh, for some reason. And I always remember that the two common reasons that dogs do fight or get into trouble is affection and food. So a lot of times they will actually have an issue over food when maybe they hadn't in forever. This may not be seasonal, but uh, I think a lot of the dogs are enjoying cooler weather, not today, but we do anticipate having maybe a little fall weather before long. We're seeing a fair amount of 
parvovirus also. There's a lot of young puppies out there, and I would encourage everyone to have their puppies uh, vaccinated. We recommend at least three sets of shots, probably four, starting at about six weeks of age and going every three weeks until they're about four months old. It's very important because parvovirus is out there. It's a virus that's spread through uh, primarily feces, but it can be spread uh, through your dog unknowingly uh, if the dog has been in your yard or possibly if someone has a dog that has parvovirus comes to visit. So I'm just saying be careful with that and take care of your um, young dogs especially. So I, I think uh, people who have multiple dogs might know this, but just curious, I guess, you know, especially if it's different breeds of dogs and everything, they kind of have their own little way of working out who's in charge and, and that sort of thing? They do, actually. And uh, sometimes dogs will hold a grudge, and I've seen this, uh, against another dog. Uh, maybe uh, the other dog is a dominant dog, but the subservient dog a lot of times will try to get back at the dominant dog. So it's, it's always a, a mix, but most households are fairly calm and, and, and good. You may have an alpha dog, whether it's a male or a female, and, uh, and other dogs kind of form. And if you want to say a pack, uh, if you have multiple dogs, they seem to do well like that. Uh, and then switching over to cats, um, again, most cat owners realize this, but it's, it's amazing to me how my cat, I mean, it seems like two, three o'clock in the morning. And again, that's their time to be up. And he's, I guess, checking out his surroundings, making sure everything is okay with the way he views the world. Sure. And I think uh, we have to think about cats. What do cats do in the daytime when you're gone? Most of them are asleep or sleep, <laughs> resting up for you to come. And that three o'clock hour uh, certainly is a prime time. They can be more nocturnal, I think, than uh and we'd like to think that they would be. We think that they go to sleep when we go to sleep. But I, I think my cats uh, patrol the house. I've got one that I call the sheriff. He, he's always looking after things and seeing uh, what's going on. And uh, he, he does patrol and during the night as well. Uh, so I guess the real thing is that cats don't form packs. They may form pride if you have multiple cats. But, again, there's a give and take as far as disposition and who's in charge. You, you know, the other thing that's interesting about my cat is, as you say, I, it's true. Every time I come home for lunch or after work, uh, I sometimes can catch him. But it's funny because if he's napping, it's almost like he gets up. He's, oh, no, no, I wasn't asleep. You know, I was just <laughs> – but uh, but when I interrupt his nap to, you know, pet him or whatever, I always think to myself, oh, gee, I'm, I'm bothering him when he's trying to sleep and not think to himself. But, yeah, but in this morning at 3 o'clock, he was doing the same to me. So sure, sure. I, I always remember the, the cartoon or joke. Uh, this vet is telling the cat owner he's got a, a broken leg or some other injury, and he's telling the kid that the cat needs to get plenty of rest, maybe 18 or 20 hours a day. And he, the owner says, well, my cat's already doing that. <laughs> it's napping most of the day and maybe up some at night. So they cats, cats are pretty smart. It's always fun to me to notice the different spots. You know, he's got several spots around the house where he will take his naps, and it's interesting to me that to see. Usually it's on the top of my dresser. In fact, I put an old towel up there to kind of keep things clean, but he seems to like that. But also, uh, and I think I might have talked about this on the air before too, but 
when he sleeps in the bed, it's, he picks out the very center of the bed to where there is no possible way that any other creature, human or not, uh, could share it with him. So he, he sure knows how to take charge like most cats do, I guess. That's the most comfortable spot for him, okay? We have got our friend Kathleen on the line. I think it's got a story for us, so let's uh, welcome her to the show. Good morning, Kathleen. You're on the air with us. Good morning, guys. I tell you what, Kevin, you when you come up with your cat stories and stuff, it makes me laugh out loud because I, I, I know exactly what you're going through. <laughs> anyway, what shoe, where is he going to sleep, and certain spots, it's like he allows me to walk around them. But uh, I've got a, a question about the rabbit, and I have some question uh, question about the hogs, but the rabbit's real important. We know that you estimated she's about 100 years old. Well, she's doing good, but um, I had a surgical procedure not long ago. I had to be away for a couple of days, and I had someone to watch them. But someone never showed up. I came back, and my fat little bunny... <laughs> I thought somebody pulled the trick on me and substituted bunnies. <laughs> uh, lost probably half her body weight. There was no food, no water. I liked to have a fit. So um, I got her back uh, immediately. I started putting water and a little food here and gradually bringing it up and bathing her. But uh, she never did gain all the weight back. She seems to get she could get tired uh, laying down on her side a lot. And I, I never saw her do that. She just always looked like a stuffed turkey, you know what I mean? Sitting around. Uh, I know she's old, so uh, I just didn't figure that I was going to come back to have to deal with that, you know. But anyway, uh, is there anything that I can do or is this normal? Uh, I don't know. You know, that's a great question. What what do you normally feed her? Well, she has the pellets, but I think she was a wild bunny. It was a, what they call a rescue bunny. <laughs> um, I actually pick her food out of the yard. There's no chemicals on the grass or anything like that here. So when I was recovering from a cancer surgery years ago, I couldn't do much. I just watched out the window, and there was an old, old rabbit. He looked like he was something off of a cartoon that would come his route in the morning and his route in the evening. So, of course, I had to call him Harry the Hare. So I watched Harry for the better part of six months, and I saw what he ate. And I, I realized what his little routine was. So every now and then I'd put little packets of food like uh, the peelings of a turnip, the core of a cabbage, and, and his way, and he enjoyed all that. So I watched him. So I actually feed certain plants. She loves the milkweed. Uh, she likes the lovage. Um, she likes the, the parsley. Loves that. Different little things. Plus her little her little entourage that she eats. You know. Yeah. Okay. Here's here's the thing to think about. One, she's she is an old bunny. Uh, yep. Number two, she may have been overweight to start out with. It's not a good way to lose weight by starvation, but she did sound like um, you, you oh, said yeah. you only only gone and it two. It was hot, very, very hot. So I think she's lucky to be alive if she had no water. So gradually try to increase, maybe get some. I would say some alfalfa, 
uh, hay or pellets uh, to see if that would help. And oh, she has the pellets, but the, the the things that I get are extra, a little on the side, never a lot, like a little taste of this, a little taste of that. Change it you up with the season. You might try some blueberries or something like that as well, if you can find the vine. She gets the blueberries, yeah. Right. It's going to take her a while. It's going to take her a while probably to gain back, but uh, I think you're doing the best you can, and uh, not knowing exactly how old she is, you said 100 years. Well, she's probably what? She's probably 8 to 10 years old, right? So, well, I'm here eight to ten years, and I think she was full grown, not uh, a total adult, but at least a year old when I got her. Well, I think you're doing the right thing, and you did good not just pouring a bunch of food in with her immediately, but keep working with her, and I think she she will she will do okay. Okay. Yeah, one of her favorite things is verbena. So I give her the leaves, not the flowers. I don't know. I saw Harry eating them, so. <laughs> yeah, my for Venus in summer. Well, well good luck. I enjoy good luck with and, and Libby, I just wanted to say I enjoy your tales. When you talk, sometimes I just feel like I'm sitting in the car and the side of you saying, "Did you see that?" <laughs> oh, I I listen to them. So y'all have a good day. All right, uh, Kathleen, thanks for your call. I think we've cleared up some technical issues so we can resume our discussion with our guest for today, Dr. Frank Moore from the University of Southern Mississippi. He's going to tell us about uh, the migratory birds that we might be seeing this time of year. Visiting with us this morning, Dr. Frank Moore, uh, Professor Emeritus at the University of Southern Mississippi, going to be talking about uh, migration. Uh, Dr. Moore, glad we've got you back on the air. Sorry for the earlier technical issues. Let's uh, retract some of the stuff that we were talking about. First, when we were talking about the way these birds migrate such long distances, you were saying that there were a number of risks that come along with that migration. If you would tell us about that. Thank you uh, for getting me back online. Um, I was thinking if uh, as birds fly nonstop, hundreds, even thousands of miles, they invariably stop over to rest or replenish energy stores. And it's at that time where they can uh, meet up with predators um, about which they know nothing trying to find habitat um, that's suitable for replenishing energy stores. These birds migrate at night, and so they necessarily lose some sleep, and we know the problems with sleep loss. Um, And these problems uh, are magnified at this time of year because most of the birds that are passing over us or stopping over in Jackson for the day uh, are young birds, birds born just a month or two ago. So this is their very first migration. Is migration innate in these birds and it's just something they, they know to do? Yes, indeed. They have a, uh, we'll call it a circannual or annual rhythm that's built in, if you will. And so um, as the summer comes to an end and fall begins, um, they're in fact induced to uh, fatten up and Uh, engage in migratory activity, and even birds that are only a couple of months old um, begin to show the uh, urge to migrate and head south in in most cases. And and do they go in groups and flocks, or is it more uh, solitary? Well, for the songbirds that many of us are familiar with in our backyard or backwoods, these birds migrate alone. Now, there may be 
literally millions of birds aloft on any given night. In fact, last night, um, there, it was an intense migratory event across central US and through Mississippi. Um, but these birds are flying alone, and uh, which makes the issue of when to stop or where to stop, um, you know, a particularly problematic one for uh, birds of the year. This is fascinating to me that that you mentioned that these are young birds and, you know, how this sort of urge to migrate is innate. Well, how do they how do they know where to go? I mean, is that again, is that just pre-programmed in in their their brain or something? Well, that's it's true. They have a directional preference and that is, if you will, innate as well. And so uh, at this time of year, the preference is to head south um, and they have a. a uh, use a, a variety of sources of information to determine south from north, from east, from west. For example, at night, they might use the stars. Uh, when the sun is setting, they might use, in fact, the setting sun, uh, polarized light. The Earth's magnetic field is known to be important in direction finding for these birds. And so these are the sources of information they use to determine what direction. Another excellent question for a young bird is when do I take off and should I take off tonight? That largely depends on what the weather's uh, oaths for them. So um, how precise uh, of a route did they take? Again, you, you mentioned weather being a variable factor and the other things we talked about, the risks, maybe that sort of thing. So is it a kind of a general idea of I need to go south, but as they go along, maybe they're planning the best way to get there? I think that's a nice way to put it. Um, general, we want to head south. And these birds, it turns out, are very precise um, in their navigational capabilities. So, for example, you probably have birds that bred in the woods near you, and they bred there last year and the year before. And so she, he, uh, your pair of birds return to the same place, and yet they may have spent the winter in Mexico, Peru, Brazil, so their navigational capabilities are are remarkable. And yet when they're on their journey, if we just generally head south and let the weather carry us in the general direction, um, the navigational capabilities kick in when the closer they get to home, if you will. So it's not then that unlikely that someone might see the same bird uh, come through their area each year? Ah, not likely since um, the if they head south in general and yet are buffeted about by, say, uh, prevailing winds um, and then sit down at a particular place uh, unfamiliar to them, they can then make a correction if they've, say, been blown off course slightly. They can correct when they're on the ground before they take off and uh, get back on track, if you will. So it's not quite necessary to be so precise when we're moving, say, from Jackson, Mississippi, across the Gulf of Mexico. But once we get close to home, that's when um, we want to be precise. This is kind of an odd question, but um, have have humans in the aviation industry learned anything from birds migration and, and birds navigating? That's, I 
and I, I, I'm going to have to say I'm, I don't quite um, know. I was thinking about the structure of bird wings. This is not an answer to your question about uh, direction finding or navigational capabilities, but um, the structure of a bird's wing is aerodynamically remarkable. And in fact, uh, that in and of itself is probably a design that from which we uh, the aviation industry may have learned a thing or two. If we come back to orientation and navigation, the fact that birds are able to use the Earth's magnetic field uh, turns out to be rather common across uh, animal life, and yet we're uncertain about our capabilities to do so. That is human capabilities to perceive and use the Earth's magnetic field. So uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the birds that call the Mississippi coast home for part of the year and some that are here year-round. First, if you would, tell us about the the tricolored heron. Ah, that's a bird that's going to spend uh, um, the year here with us, um, it, common in wetlands, not particularly migratory, and yet these birds will move around and uh, uh, find new homes if, say, habitat deteriorates. What about the uh, least bittern? Uh, same thing. This is a bird you're likely to see if you were to travel to Louisiana, Mississippi coast, out in the marshes. A uh, bird that spends, uh, um, I mean, they do move around a bit uh, depending on uh, weather. Um, if we're thinking about long distance migrants, uh, you and, and I are familiar with purple martins and barn swallows and these birds. Uh, fly thousands of kilometers, fly thousands of miles to uh, winter in the tropics and then return to us in uh, a rather precise fashion uh, to spend a breeding season in our backyard. You know, it, to me, it's kind of funny with some of the bird names. I, if I were a bird, I wouldn't like to have the adjective least in my name. That seems a little bit <laughs> insulting. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. Uh, if you look through uh, uh, just your local bird guide and the variety of names, many are named after, uh, let's say, elder ornithologists, past ornithologists, uh, or uh, individuals that had played some role in, uh, you know, Audubon, for example, in uh, ornithology and. We pick up and use those names to identify birds, or, uh, as you well know, we often rely on color to mm -hmm. identify birds. Uh, scarlet tanager, for example. Or... Yes, because the next one on the list is is that an example of that the reddish egret. Uh, again, another bird that is not so common, but you can find it in the marshes along our coast, and uh, uh, a strikingly. A beautiful bird, uh, as I said, is not that common. So if you see one, you should pat yourself on the back. What about uh, the size on on some of these birds? Uh, fairly or larger, maybe than some of the songbirds. Some well, if we're thinking about songbirds, um, you'll see American robins year round in Mississippi, um, but they'll become more abundant in the winter, and that's a pretty. That's a pretty good-sized thrush. Um, I was thinking of uh, ruby-throated hummingbirds, about as small as you get, and yet are uh, wonderful long-distance migrants. Um, 
been a breeding season by us and uh, in some cases along our coast, but for the most part are a long distance migrants. And if you think about this bird, it just weighs a uh, few ounces engaging in uh, in long distance flight. That's pretty remarkable. Right. We talk about how weather might could influence that and that sort of thing. You think you're right. So, uh, such a small creature there. It is amazing. And really, I think when we talk about migration, as I mentioned earlier in the show, it, at least in my mind, it just boggles the mind about how amazing it is and, and what they actually accomplish. We've got a caller on the line. So we're going to say good morning to William, who's calling in from Starkville today. Good morning, William. You're on the air with us. Uh, good morning. Uh, uh, speaking of uh, of small birds and long migrations, I recently, just in the past year, read the, the record breakers of uh, long distance migration. The the uh, bar-tailed godwit, eighty eight thousand miles nonstop in eleven days, uh, always strikes me as amazing. And then there's a, a, a smaller cousin, half the size of the uh, godwit that comes down across the Gulf of St. Lawrence and hits New Jersey and then heads for the the, the hump of Brazil uh, for 6,000 miles. But anyway, you may have mentioned it. I, I just tuned in. And my question is this. Uh, we talk about, I've, I've all my life heard, and, and I'm pretty old, <laughs> have heard them talk about birds sensing the magnetic field. But as um, geologists know, the magnetic field of the Earth reverses periodically, and uh, there's uh, 10,000 years or more in the interval when when the magnetic field is either is either mixed up or, or uh, in negligible or um, fluctuating. I don't know how it changes, but I've I've always wondered how in the world did birds, if they depended very deeply on man, magnetic uh, uh, fields. How they um, how they manage during that period, and I, I'm only making a comment in case somebody has some insight into that. So, well, that's a, that's a, if I could answer that question or at least try to. Uh, yeah. Uh, before okay. I do so, I wanted to. I, I love your Godwit example because that's a bird that flies um, uh, across oceans to small island situations and then back over to Asia. Um, and it does all this over rather featureless landscape. And so it says something about its remarkable uh, orientation and navigational capabilities. You're, that's a beautiful example. And they, and they actually uh, have proven that it flies nonstop by, by inserting, uh, surgically inserting a, a tracking device that, uh, that uh, communicates with satellites so they know that it flew nonstop without any break. And the book, I've got a, I think I've got the book on it that uh, describes how the uh, um, Maori mythology uh, even implies or suggests that the Maoris, that uh, the, the um, uh, Polynesians discovered New Zealand, where they, which is their destination, that the, the Polynesians discovered New Zealand because they saw these birds, they could see these birds flying, and they could tell that they weren't, they were land birds and not seabirds, so they knew right. they must be headed to look to land. I think that's just a, an amazing uh, document comment. Uh, yeah. Yes. Go ahead. So, yeah, Doctor, you want me to comment on the uh, Earth's magnetic field because that's an excellent yeah. question that's been brought up 
um, often with respect to in the evolutionary history of migratory birds, the Earth's magnetic field has reversed more than once. And yet it's the nature of the compass, the magnetic compass, that is independent of whether the North Pole is to the north or the pole flops and is to the south. How the bird reads the Earth's magnetic field is independent of that fact. So during the change, they should not be, um, that should not disturb their capabilities. That and the fact that they have redundant compasses. That is to say they can rely on stars or the sun and the Earth's magnetic field. So if, if one compass is not available, uh, on an overcast night, they can't see the stars. They can rely on another compass to determine direction. All right, William, thank you for your call. Always good to get your input on creature comforts. Let's uh, move on. We've got another caller, Roger in Richton. Good morning, Roger. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Uh, got a question on, uh, well, two questions. One on one, wood storks. I was uh, identified a wood stork on my property this past week. It was a juvenile. And uh, and reading in my bird books, apparently they are somewhat endangered. And I'm and but my bird book's a little old. I'm just wondering if those populations increasing, and uh, if there's anything I can do to attract this guy to hang around. Well, I don't know. Uh, populations are not necessarily increasing. In fact, in general, bird life is decreasing uh, largely across the globe, if you will, for a variety of reasons. Um, but the wood stork is a nice example of a migrant. Um, and uh, I think in terms of trying to encourage a bird to stay, if, uh, if that's possible, is uh, the nature of the habitat that they, um, that they prefer. And to the extent that that can be influenced, that's probably true of all bird life. What we can do in our own backyard or in the woods that surround us or the marsh um, is that the quality of that habitat becomes very important to any bird. Most impressive bird. Uh, the other question I have, a uh, comment earlier about the robins. Uh, I, I'm in South Mississippi, so I don't see robins in the summertime. How far south do they generally breed? Well, that's a, uh, they probably don't breed right around you. Um, they, they are known to spend the entire year in parts of Mississippi, but for the most part, the American robin breeds north of us. And when we see large number of robins, um, it usually is during the winter, fall, winter, um, because they are migratory. They're a wonderful migratory bird, um, most of whom, most of them breed further north of us. Uh, so you're, you're right, you're not gonna see many uh, until, uh, now and throughout the winter, you may pick up large flocks of American robins by us. All right, Roger, thanks for your call. Um, so, um, uh, Dr. Moore, as you mentioned, so if someone wanted to help migratory birds along their journey, as you said, maybe uh, habitat would be the best way to do that? I think that that's always the case, is to improve habitat. And the question becomes, well, how do I do that? Uh, you know, it could be um, improve or increase the quality of food. For example, many birds enjoy fruit, and it's not too difficult to determine what uh, fruits birds prefer. Um, 
and so one could plant fruiting shrubs and one might argue well that that's at a very local scale but i think if if we do things locally uh, they will become a community change and then even a larger scale to impact uh, you know the, the migratory birds and bird life in general um, i could mention it is uh, there's a wonderful website that is very simple one called birds.cornell, C-O-R-N-E-L-L, the university, dot E-D-U. A wonderful, wonderful place. All right, I think we're going to have to cut it off there. We've run out of time. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio. Funding provided in part by listeners. Today, to hear today's show or previous show, you can find it at creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show was produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Charles Arnold. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Frank Moore, I'm Kevin Farrell. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.